that the doctrine of God's immutability is a doctrine that, on the one hand, should be a terror to the person who refuses to repent of his sins, but it's also a doctrine of incredible comfort for the repentant believer. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important attributes of God, and I would say uh, an attribute that has been historically at least essential to understanding who God is, is divine immutability. The attribute that teaches us that God does not change. Uh, He is eternally the same, and though we change uh, as finite creatures, he is God without change. This doctrine can be, this this attribute can be seen in uh, many of the confessions of the Christian faith. It's also an attribute that is richly rooted in Scripture itself, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I would argue that it's an attribute that has major implications, uh, not just for what we believe, but for how we live, not just for our doctrine, but for our, our doxology as well. However, in the 20th and 21st century, we are uh, seeing different challenges to the, the attribute of immutability. Uh, for example, you have someone like a Karl Barth who... Uh, on the one hand, seems to affirm immutability, but if you keep reading, he then qualifies himself and will object to certain uh, classical presentations of immutability, uh, saying that, well, this is a God who is rigidly immobile. Uh, Then you have uh, more recent evangelical treatments that say, well, God is uh, immutable in his essence, but when it comes to how he engages with the world or how he relates to creation, he is relationally mutable. Uh, and then, of course, many know of uh, the recent challenges to immutability from uh, open theism, for example, where not only God's knowledge is denied, God's for- exhaustive, meticulous foreknowledge, but with it, God's immutable nature. Well, I could go on all that to say these examples uh, demonstrate that uh, the doctrine, uh, the the attribute of divine immutability is one that uh, has fallen on on hard times in many respects. Well, that's why I am excited to have with me on the Credo podcast, Paul Smalley, who's at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also been a pastor for uh, around 12 years, and he's the author of a couple of books. Uh, one book that uh, I have really enjoyed, Reform Systematic Theology. Volume 1 is out on Revelation and God. This is a book that he is co-authoring with Joel Beakey. Paul, thank you for coming on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much. Paul, maybe we can uh, start uh, our discussion of immutability with an objection, and this comes from uh, none other than Karl Barth, who's uh, 
you know, in, in, in evangelical, uh, from evangelical all the way to neo-Orthodox to Protestant liberal theologies, whatever tradition someone finds themselves in, they, they are most definitely familiar with Karl Barth. He's considered one of the most significant, some would say the most significant theologian uh, in the 20th century. And uh, when we read his church dogmatics, you can see some of the reason for that. However, Bart uh, is also well known for the way that he revises the attribute of mutability. On the one hand, uh, he will talk about God's constancy, but on the other hand, he will then turn to attack uh, a classical or reformed, uh, reformed uh, understanding of immutability, saying, well, this uh, articulation of God's unchanging nature, that results in a God who is immobile, uh, or, or a, he'll call it a dead immobility. And he then protests against this type of uh, understanding of immutability. Uh, we could go on. There's other examples uh, during the 20th century who did something similar, say, with, with uh, time and eternity, who said, well, God can't be eternal in the classical sense. He must, once he creates, he must then uh, come into time and be even bound by time if he's actually going to participate uh, with us on a relational level and, and on and on down the list. Uh, this type of modification is not uncommon in the 20th century, Paul, you've studied uh, this attribute of immutability to great length, and you've treated it in your reform systematic theology. How do you respond to someone like Karl Barth? Is that uh, is his um, charge, his accusation, his claim there? Is, is it uh, true? Is it accurate, or not? I think Barth's objection is an example of trying to, on the one hand, preserve God's lordship in some sense of the word, um, particularly over against the kind of pantheistic or panentheistic ideas of God that we find in um, liberal modernism, and yet not go all the way with the biblical concept of lordship. So, and as I think is often the case with Bart. He starts off perhaps with some good directions, but then because he will not simply follow the scriptures and um, with the scriptures follow the Orthodox Christian tradition, he ends up in a bad place. The, um, the classic view of God as being immutable is not at all this idea of God being somehow frozen or immobile or impersonal. Rather, it's the idea that God exists um, as, a, as a fountain of life, as an infinite fullness of life and love, and therefore he does not change because he need not change. He is already perfect in every way and complete. When we, I, I really like the way you just put it. Uh, he's perfect in every way. He's complete. Uh, he's, he's life in and of himself, the fullness of life. Uh, the, the fathers use different phrases to capture that. Um, you put that so well. It, it seems like then the charge or maybe the caricature that, well, if you believe that God is immutable in his essence, and is that, whenever we're talking about any of the attributes, if, if you apply immutability across the board there, 
this charge that it is results in an immobile, static, uh, you use the word frozen, a frozen God. Well, it seems to, to almost miss the point, doesn't it? Because um, we're talking about God who is life in and of himself. It, in other words, to to picture him that way seems to almost assume that uh, this isn't a living God. It, it, maybe you can flesh that out a little bit more. What? Why is it that... Um, why is it that these two things have been posed against each other? On the one hand, God is a living being, and God is an immutable being. Well, it seems to me, and not being able to get into the mind of Bart himself, but it it seems to me that this may be an example of where we take our own reasoning and our own experience and then extrapolate from that to what God must be like. And so we think, well, what would, what would I be like if I were immutable? Well, okay, so what, how can I even conceive of that? I must be somehow like a, a snapshot stuck in a particular moment in time, and I can never grow, I can never develop, I can't have personal relationships. I'm, um, to go back to the frozen idea, it's like I'm in a block of ice. Um, whereas the scriptures don't deal in those kinds of ideas at all, and yet they affirm that God is immutable, and yet, as you said, they teach that he is the living God. Um, they describe him as a God who is um, the fountain of life, Psalm 36, verse 9, um, and so the, the biblical picture combines God's unchangeableness, where he says, I, the Lord, do not change, period. Um, there's, there's no qualification there. Uh, with the idea of him being a living, personal God, a God who lives in an infinite fullness of, um, well, you just go back in Psalm 36 and talks about his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his righteousness and judgments and compares them to the biggest things we can possibly experience. So it's, it's not that God has a, a lack of life, it's that he has an infinite life, an infinite love, an infinite faithfulness, and that's why it doesn't change. That's the biblical perspective on it. But that's so different than our human experience that um, we have trouble holding on to it without twisting it and messing it up somehow. Yeah, I lo- The way you put it is, is so helpful. It, it, we could think of it the other way around in, in a negative way too, right? In, in which... Uh, if God were to change, that would seem to to assume that uh, he doesn't he is not life uh, in, in the fullest, most absolute sense that that he isn't life in and of himself, and he must somehow become more uh, than than he is eternally uh, than he is already. Now we're, we're, we've been talking about someone like Karl Barth, but uh, if we're honest, this uh, idea, and you explain it, how you know we extrapolate from our human experience back to God, um, I think that's true. Um, but if we're honest, uh, this isn't something that is you know, just characteristic of, say, neo-Orthodoxy. When we look at uh, evangelicalism and, and how diverse it can be at times, um, even sometimes within reform circles, uh, one might notice that, well, even, uh, even their immutability is 
sometimes revised or, or sometimes modified. Uh, just to throw one example out there, uh, I, some will say something like, well, God is uh, immutable in his essence, but nonetheless, he is uh, mutable uh, in his relationships or relationally mutable. Is this a legitimate distinction to make? On the one hand, it seems neat and tidy, uh, and, and some think, well, maybe this solves the, then that tension between God being infinite, transcendent, imminent, uh, infinite, transcendent, and then God trying to be imminent and relate to us. Uh, does it solve that, or does it pose maybe some other problems? Well, I certainly can... Um sympathize with the um, the motivation, because on the one hand, uh, the people who propose this kind of model are wrestling with the, the biblical revelation, and um, you've got statements that God does not change, and yet that God is uh, relational, and clearly his relationships change, because if they didn't, we'd have no gospel, right? I mean... We're sinners, we're under the wrath of God, and if that relationship cannot change, then we have no hope. So from an evangelical, gospel-oriented standpoint, um, trying to fit those two things together, you could see how they would come up with a semi-immutable, semi-mutable approach to God. Um, But the problem is that... Uh, I think we're trying to solve a problem that the Bible doesn't recognize as a problem. Uh, The scriptures simply teach us um, that the Lord does not change. Um, And the Bible does teach us that our relationship with God does change and can change, particularly through Christ. We trust in Christ and we're forgiven of our sins. But the Bible never presents to us a picture of a God who kind of changes in some ways, but doesn't change. And the difficulty that I have with some of the evangelical and Reformed theologians' approach, where they talk about relational mutability, is when you read them, they're not just talking about a changed relationship. They're actually talking about a change in God himself towards us. And I just don't see that in the scriptures. Yes, it it almost seems as though in that attempt uh, to to explain uh, that relational aspect, it almost seems as though um, you're you're trying to keep off or hold off uh, what God does from who He is. Now, now we certainly don't want to you know collapse who God is in eternity with who God is in time. And yet at the same time, we, we have to be careful that uh, we, we don't then assume that, well, some because there's some type of relationship in, in which we would experience a change, uh, like, like you mentioned, uh, one minute we're under God's wrath, and, 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 and then, you know, let's say with conversion, we, are, uh, we, we see Christ and cherish Christ and, and we're converted. We have to be careful that we don't then assume, well, since I changed from sinner, ungodly, to righteous in Christ, that, that somehow God himself has changed. It seems very convenient on the one hand to say, well, God can change relationally, but not in his essence. But on the other hand, that seems to, to boy, it certainly divides God up as if, uh, as if 
what he does or or how he acts is somehow separate from who he is it's it's hard to see how um you know saying there's mutability in his actions could not affect um could not affect who he is in his essence does does that sound right i would say so i mean as as you said earlier we're we're talking about things that are extremely profound, and whenever we're talking about the Lord himself, we're, we have to recognize that he is incomprehensible to us. We can't plumb the depths, but we, we have to follow what God has revealed in his word, and God has revealed in his word that there is a, a wonderful unity and simplicity to God's being. Um, it's not just that God has love, but God is love. Not just that God has righteousness and truth, but he, he is light, as John says in his first epistle. And so, given that the Bible reveals God to be uh, a being who, in a way that transcends our understanding, but still we can know this about him. We know that it is true that he is one, that he is simple in his essence, and we have no biblical basis that I know of to have this kind of God who comes in two layers or two parts, um, and one part of him is changing and another part of him stays the same. That's, again, just not found in the scriptures. You know, we've been talking about God's immutability, but I like how you've mentioned God's simplicity. Uh, we have to be careful that we are not dividing God up uh, or you know, abandoning his divine unity. Uh, this is the, the simple, eternal God that we are talking about. Now, that being the case, uh, one of the, uh, another common objection or, or perhaps a challenge uh, to God's immutability would be creation itself. Uh, sometimes it's it's argued that, well, uh, if, if God is immutable, once he creates the universe, that, that, that just can't be anymore. Or uh, some have modified that to say, well, he was immutable, or perhaps he was eternal, but once he creates the universe, um, immutability, eternal, Eternality; those things have to those things have to be significantly modified. I love what Augustine says. Uh, this is in his in his book on the Trinity. Though I think he makes a similar statement, if I remember right. I think he makes a similar statement in his book uh, Confessions. He says God fashions all things changeably, yet without any change in Himself and creates things temporal, yet without temporal movement in himself. Can you elaborate uh, on Augustine and maybe interpret Augustine for us here? Why, what, is he, what is he getting at, uh, and how is he understanding God in relation to creation? Well, Augustine is... Um, drawing upon one of the most fundamental ideas of biblical faith, and that is that there is a very strong distinction between the Creator and the creation, and that they operate in 
um, that the two ideas are in two different realms. It's not just that God is kind of an improved version of creation or a man with superpowers, but he is a being in a totally different category than creation, and therefore um, creation is changeable, the creator is not. And he's, he's drawing there from um, a, the biblical doctrine of creation, which, while presenting God as being uh, completely involved in the life of creation, nevertheless, God's own life remains distinct from creation and independent from creation. Um, that's implied in Genesis 1, um, the sovereign God who's making things and himself um, is not receiving anything. He's always the giver. It's even more explicit in Psalm 102, um, where it says in verses 25, 26, and 27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So there we've got a very clear statement of the doctrine of creation, of God making the heavens and the earth. But there's no concept there that that changes God. In fact, the whole point is that there's this huge contrast. Because God is the creator, he is the eternal and unchanging one. And his creation, even the things that seem most permanent to us, like the skies and the earth beneath our feet, that's going to wear out like some old clothes, and God's going to discard them one day or, or renew them. So I think in modern theology, there is this concept that when God created the world, it somehow had to involve a self-limitation that he put on himself. But when you read the, the scriptures, uh, like Genesis 1 and Psalm 102 that I just cited, creation is never described as a divine self-limitation. Instead, creation is, is a manifestation of God's lack of limitations. Um, the, the very power and the wisdom and his immutability and all those other attributes. You've been talking to Paul Smalley about God's immutability, but let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break and ready to return to our conversation with Paul Smalley about God's unchanging nature. A text like Psalm 102 is uh, so refreshing to read. Uh, like you just said, on the one hand, uh, it, it teaches us so much about what creation is, but it also teaches us what creation is not, uh, distinguishing between creation and the creator himself. 
Psalm 102 and, and so many other passages, uh, the psalmist does such a, a, a wonderful job of distinguishing between the creator-creature. Uh, this is what in theology we call the creator-creature distinction. Now, Paul, uh, as much as, uh, and sometimes this comes from well-intended um, Bible-believing Christians, uh, but, but sometimes it's objected uh, that, well, yeah, okay, it says uh, the creator is distinct from the creature and, and he's immutable, we're not, that sort of thing. But at the same time, they'll, they'll go to passages where it says God repents or God relents, uh, and they'll say, well, see, he, he must change in some way. Um, it's some, you know, if we think back to, to open theism and the influence it had, and, and sometimes still does have, uh, some will take this so far to say that, you know, draw implications for God's knowledge. Uh, well, if God repents or relents, he changes, and, and if he changes, he, he must not have exhaustive knowledge of the future. Or uh, sometimes it's taken in an ethical direction to say that um, God has diverse plans, a plan A, a, a plan B, perhaps. Uh, you know, he, he makes... He realizes that uh, something's not working out as he thought, um, and uh, he realizes, well, this was a mistake, and now he must alter his plan entirely. All that to say, you know, a lot of Christians out there may look at immutability and say, well, okay, I understand this, but what do I do when I come to these passages that, that use this type of language? What would you say, Paul? Well, I think there are, uh, two ditches that we can fall into when we come to passages like that. Um, one ditch that we can fall into is just to brush them off and to basically communicate to people, oh, those don't say what they you think they mean, and we don't need to pay attention to them because we've got our doctrine of God. And, boy, you know, it, I think that's an example of using a bad argument to reach a right conclusion. Um, we do need to take the scriptures very seriously. We're not trying to derive some philosophical view of God out of our own logical capabilities. We're trying to follow what the Bible says. So that's one ditch we don't want to fall into. We don't want to just brush those statements off. Um, But the other problem, the other ditch that we can fall into, as you've mentioned in the example of open theism, is to take those in a sense that, okay, we're going to take those and we're going to say, okay, God does repent, therefore he changes his mind, he changes his plan, and we deduce from that that God doesn't really know the future. Uh, we do deduce from that, as the open theists do, that, that people actually give God advice, and he changes his mind based upon people's advice. And you, you end up destroying what the Bible says, says elsewhere about God. Um, and so we, we need to interpret all of Scripture as a whole. And so how do we avoid those two ditches? Well, let's see. Um, number one, we need to approach the Bible remembering that we do theology as image bearers. What I mean is this. Um, we're like children who are having a discussion about nuclear physics. <laughs> I mean, we, we, 
we're talking about a being who is so much greater than we are that the only things that we can know about him are what he himself has told us. Plus, we're sinners, which means we're in, we're in a state of animosity against God until he saves us. And even then, we still have um, some resistance inside of us against who he is. We're totally dependent upon what God says. And we, we understand him only by way of analogy. Um, so God has to talk to us in human language so that we understand him. If he didn't, if he, if he talked to us in whatever God's own language would be, if it's even proper to speak that way, well, there's no way we could possibly understand what he was saying. But what that means is, when we read the Bible, we realize that it uses human language of God. And so we have to interpret um, passages like, Passages, for example, the obvious one is where it talks about God's arm and his hand. And we know from other texts of Scripture that God is not a physical being. Um, and so we interpret those as representing God's power. When we come to the texts, then, that talk about God's repentance, we notice that there are some texts in the Bible that say that God repented or he relented. There are other texts in the Bible, sometimes in the very same chapter, like in 1 Samuel 15, that say God does not repent, he does not relent, and he does so because he's God and not a man. And so when we read those, we're realizing, okay, the Lord's giving us a hint here. He's saying to us, now there, there's certain ways in which you could think of me as repenting or relenting or changing but you need to understand that as God, I really don't do that. And so you start looking at those passages, and we don't have time to go into the interpretation of a particular text here. Um, but you look at those passages, and you look at, okay, God doesn't repent or relent. What is it saying then when it says that he does, in a way that's appropriate for who God is? And... What comes out is God does change his course of action and his relationships with people based upon who they are and what they're doing. And that's a lot like human repenting or relenting. You know, if I'm dealing with a child who has been rebellious and then that child changes uh, let's say it's a boy, changes, the little boy changes his attitude um, and is contrite, then my course of action is going to change too. Um, now the child needs comfort. He doesn't need a rebuke anymore. Um, so in the same way, um, God's ways of dealing with us do change because he is a God of righteousness and love and goodness. And our relationship with him does change. But we also have to take just as seriously the texts that say, I, the Lord, do not change. Um, I am not a man that I should repent. And therefore, God himself, in his own being, he does not change. He cannot change because he's God. And it, it can be very hard for us to hold those things together, but that's part of the work of faith, where we say, the Bible says this, and it says this. I'm going to believe both of them. I'm going to believe both that God's relationships change and his 
his um, actions change, but I'm also going to believe that God himself does not change. And that's part of the glory of God. Now, Paul, whenever we talk about uh, doctrine and theology, there's always the temptation to remove this from the Christian life, uh, from Christian living even. Uh, Does immutability, though, uh, does it help us to connect theology to doxology? And and does uh, an attribute like immutability, does it have implications for, uh, for the Christian life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the doctrine of God's immutability is a doctrine that, on the one hand, should be a terror to the person who refuses to repent of his sins, but it's also a doctrine of incredible comfort for the repentant believer. Um, you think about the person who is a repentant believer, um, and just to go back to the text we were talking about before in, in Psalm 102, after it says, you are the same and your years have no end, it says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. The, the psalmist believes that God's immutability goes straight into a, a sense of security, a security that's grounded upon the fact that if God doesn't change, his covenant promises will come true. And, and that gives us hope. I mean, think about it. We're reading an extremely old book here. Um, we're reading about Abraham, who lived something like 4,000 years ago. How can we be sure that, that the promises and the purposes of God that he revealed to Abraham haven't been totally cast aside, and now we're dealing with a completely new thing? Well, the only way to know that, or for that matter, to know that the very promises of Christ are still trustworthy, is if God is unchanging and unchangeable. But the flip side is true as well. If a person is refusing to turn away from sin, continues to trust in himself instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's immutability is a very serious warning to that person. God is not going to back down from what he has said in his word. There is only one way to be saved. You need to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you don't, just as surely as God will never change and ever lives, he will ever live to punish you for your rejection of his goodness and his grace. And so even the gospel itself is grounded in the immutability of God. We've been talking to Paul Smalley, who is at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the co-author with Joel Beakey of Reformed Systematic Theology. Uh, Volume 1 is available as Revelation and God. Paul, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast to discuss uh, an attribute so important as immutability. Thank you. It's been a privilege to be part of it. In our conversation with Paul Smalley, we've been discussing the divine attribute of God's immutability. I loved how Paul introduced us to uh, a passage like Psalm 102, which speaks of not only God's eternal nature, but his immutable nature, and contrasts him as the creator with the creature. 
uh, distinguishing between the two. But you may notice as you finish Psalm 102 that it then draws out the implications for who Israel is and how they are to live. It's because God is immutable, because he is the same and his years have no end, that the psalmist then concludes and says, uh, the people of God, uh, they shall be established, they shall dwell secure. This is a reminder to us from the Bible itself that uh, God's character, his nature, his attributes, his, his undivided essence, all of this has so much to do with who we are and the Christian life. However, uh, things can go terribly wrong if we start modifying or changing or let alone abandoning God's immutability. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that is a temptation today, whether it's uh, neo-orthodoxy or even within evangelicalism itself, there is a tendency to modify the doctrine of God and with it God's immutability. We've been reminded in our discussion today, though, that that actually has serious and very serious consequences. If we change God's unchanging nature in any way, we actually do harm not only to who God is, but to our Christian assurance. This is uh, this conversation then uh, must be uh, something that drives us more and more to get doctrine right. Uh, because if we misunderstand doctrine and especially misunderstand who God is, there can be serious consequences for the Christian life. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.